Chapter Two of the Silver Bullet by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. De mortius nil nisi malum. And sunset fire, the Saxon spire, my guidepost unto heaven. So sang midway in the last century a local poet, who died long since and passed poems and all into oblivion. But the famous spire in its copper sheathing still catches the sunlight and glows at the center of Saxon, a veritable pillar of fire. Those natives who have emigrated, enlisted as soldiers, taken situations in London and elsewhere, shipped before the mast, as some have done, always remember church and spire. The children recall its ruddy blaze when they read Exodus. Saxham was not a large place. It might have contained a couple of hundred inhabitants, probably less, and these principally agricultural laborers. They worked on the farms and estates which dotted the vast alluvial plain stretching, stretching to Beerominster. As the city, like that one mentioned in the Bible, it is set upon a hill. The twin towers of the cathedral and the Bishop Gandalf's spire can easily be seen from Saxon, but the villagers prefer their own spire and their own parson, rarely venturing the three miles to Beelminster. Those who do go always return to their beloved hamlet, more convinced than ever as to the superiority of their birthplace. A sturdy, stubborn set of rustics, these men and women of Saxon. The topography of the country has set down in Herrick's map showed that Saxon was almost the center of the district, taking Beerominster as the real devil. The great plain was covered with many such hamlets, each clustering around its parent church, but Saxon was the nearest to the city. Far away on the other side was Smoky Iron Grip, the manufacturing town, and also in sight of Marley and Heathcroft, then sixteen miles across Southbury Heath, which Herrick and Joyce had so wearily trodden on the previous night. Southbury Junction roared with perpetual traffic from here. The great main line tapped the local railway, which converged from all points. The pine woods sheltering Saxon from the chill winds of the moor also barred it from the outside world, as Southbury was considered to be. Saxon, with its neighboring hamlets, claimed to belong solely to Beerominster. The folks would have called themselves autochthonous had they known of such a word and its meaning. The plan of the village was simple. In its center was a genuine village green, with a queen cunst of immemorial elms. From this ran four streets through the mass of houses, until they passed beyond them altogether and out into the country. On one side stands St. Edith's Church in a nest of trees, and on the other the Carr Arms, an inn of undoubted antiquity. The remaining two sides are occupied by rows of medieval-looking houses, inhabited by those whom Saxon calls the best people, by which is meant the tradesmen. There was no doctor or lawyer, and the rector representing the gentry in the village itself dwelt on its outskirts. The country people lived outside the village on their estates, 
and visited only on business, and as there were no radicals in Saxon, these were looked upon as more than mortal. Under the red-tiled roof of the car arms, Robin Joyce was still sleeping the next morning when the green was filled with excited people talking of the murder, so they called it. The event of the previous night had so shaken the nerve of the little man that it was all Herrick could do to get him out of that ghastly mansion and down to the inn. Dr. Jim, rousing the landlord, had told his story, and after seeing Robin to bed, had turned in himself. What did it matter to him that the great house was still ablaze in the pine wood, still filled with precious things, and its doors and windows open to thieves? He was too tired almost to think, and the moment his head was on the pillow, he fell into a heavy, dreamless slumber, which lasted until ten the next morning. From this much-needed rest he was awakened by Napper, the landlord, a burly man, with a ruddy face suggestive of beef and beer in large quantities. In no very pleasant humor, Jim sat up to demand with a growl and an adjective what was wanted. On being informed that Mr. Inspector Bridge of Barrowminster waited to see him, the events of the night came back on a still drowsy brain with a rush. Thoroughly awakened, he promised to be down in half an hour, and forthwith tumbled into the largest cold bath Napper could provide. After a douche and ten minutes of gymnastics, the doctor hurried in the clean shirt and his homespun suit. While he dressed, he meditated on the fact that Napper had lost no time in telling the police what had happened. In a few minutes he looked into Robin's bedroom, finding his companion still in an exhausted slumber. He went downstairs alone to face the officer. Inspector Bridge was a tall, lean man with a serious face and, what was surprising, taking in conjunction with his funeral looks, a jocular manner. The man's humor lurked in his eyes, a gray pair of twinklers, which belied the turned-down corners of his mouth. His movements were slow, his tone was brisk and businesslike, rather a contradictory personality. Herrick thought and concluded that Bridge resembled nothing so much as an undertaker out for a holiday. His profession would thus account for the solemnity and the slowness, and the holiday explained his brisk jocularity. The incongruous officer considered the young man with a pursed-up mouth and a humorous eye. He saw that Herrick was a gentleman, and this opinion being confirmed in the inspector's mind by the sight of a signet ring, he treated him with more deference than he had been prepared to show. Napper's report of the pedestrian had led Bridge to infer that they were of a genus tramp. "'Good morning, sir,' began the inspector genially. "'I have come to see you about this murder of Colonel Carr. "'My card, Mr. Mr.' "'Dr. Herrick,' said Jim, glancing at what he profanely called the official ticket. "'Have you breakfasted, Mr. Inspector? "'If not, or if you have, it really doesn't matter. "'Take the meal with me. "'I must eat before I can talk.' Bridge was only too willing, and Herrick went up several degrees in his good opinion. Napper can cater excellently, said he, rubbing his hands. I have often tested his hospitality. Dr. Jim privately thought that the inspector 
was not averse to testing anyone's hospitality. But the man seemed decent enough, and Herrick was sufficiently worldly-wise to make himself agreeable to Jack in office. In another half-hour the two were seated in a pleasant parlor before a well-spread table. Bridge performed wonders in the way of eating. How he could remain lean with such an appetite was a wonder to Jim. But the doctor himself was not far behind, and between the two of them they swept the table clean. Then Herrick lighted his pipe, ensconced himself in a chintz-covered armchair near the window, and prepared to answer the inspector's questions before asking several of his own. At the outset, Bridge detailed all that had been done up to that moment. Three policemen were looking after the pines, so was the house called, and guarding the dead. A doctor was expected from Beerminster to inspect the body. The coroner to attend to the inquest, and the relatives of the deceased had been notified. Then Mr. Inspector put Herrick through a stiff examination, and took down all he said. When the officer was quite satisfied and his notebook was full, Jim proceeded to make inquiries on his own account. The strangeness of the whole affair roused his curiosity, and, as Bridge pleasantly observed, he showed marked symptoms of detective fever. This was the first time Jim had stumbled across the disease. The dead man was called Colonel Carr, asked Dr. Herrick, crossing his legs. The inspector nodded. A well-known county name, said he. Wilford Lloyd Carr. You can see it in Burke's landed gentry. But what you will not see, added Bridge, with a dry cough, is the name he was known by hereabouts. Wicked Colonel Carr, sir. That is what every man, woman, and child called him. Not without reason, doctor. Hmm. It does sound as though he had a bad reputation. Bad, sir? echoed the inspector, not without pride. A regular out-and-out -out rip. But that he belonged to the gentry, he would have been through my hands, I can tell you. And to think of him being murdered. I ain't astonished, though I ain't astonished. He was too wicked to die in his bed, as the Christian he wasn't. Why do you say he was murdered? asked Jim alertly. The revolver was in his hand. Looks like suicide to me, at the first glance, of course. Bridge laughed grimly and shook his head. Colonel Carr was the last man in the world to take his own life, sir. Too much afraid of the burning pit for that. I examined the body this morning, and I say murder. Certainly my examination was cursory. But if he had shot himself through the heart, the linen over it would have been scorched. There is no mark of powder, not even a singe. No, sir, that shot was fired at long range. If you did not alter the position of the body, Dr. Herrick, I should say that the shot had been fired from the door. I did not alter the position of the body, Mr. Inspector. I merely turned it over and replaced it. Hmm, murder, you say? And the assassin placed the revolver in the dead man's hand to hint at suicide? Clever man or woman, Mr. Inspector, which? Lord knows, replied Bridge, rubbing his gray hair. The colonel had heaps and heaps of enemies, I can tell you. Whether man or woman, I do not know. But I'll tell you one thing, Dr. Herrick. Whosoever fired that shot knew the colonel excellently well. I see what you mean. The assassin knew that his victim was left-handed. 
Yes, sir, you hit it. Now, added Bridge meditatively, could it have been Frisco? Frisco? Who is he or her? Frisco was a servant of Colonel Carr, explained the inspector, and as great a mystery as his master. San Francisco, he called himself, and that, I take it, is the name of a town. The wicked colonel shortened it to Frisco for short. Yes, Frisco might have killed him. If you would only give me a concise biography of Carr, I should be less in the dark, Mr. Inspector. Oh, you'll hear plenty stories about him, none of them credible. But to put all you need to know at present into a nutshell, I can only say that the wicked colonel returned here from foreign parts ten years ago. He built that tower and shut himself up to live the life of a recluse. He brought Frisco with him, and the two inhabited that house all alone. No one thought of going near it. Ah, that is why the crime was not discovered earlier. Certainly, doctor. The milkman, the baker, and the butcher were always instructed to leave their goods in a porch at the side of the house. In that porch, added Bridge, we have found two days' provisions. Today is Friday. Last night when you discovered the body was Thursday, and the provisions for that day and Wednesday were untouched. Hmm. So Carr was alive on Tuesday? I believe, doctor, that he was murdered on Tuesday night. According to Napper, Frisco was drinking here on that evening and spoke ill of his master. Carr must have been alive then. If Frisco killed him, he would leave Saxon on Tuesday night. Therefore, the provisions for Wednesday and Thursday would not be taken in. Did not the baker and the rest suspect anything when they found two days' provisions untouched? Lord bless you, no, said Bridge jovially. The wicked colonel was that queer that nothing he did seemed strange. Well, said Jim, after a pause, from what you tell me, it seems likely that this man Frisco knows something of the murder, if he did not commit it himself. Can't you find him? There's no sign of the man, sir. What about his appearance? A stout sailor, that's what he looks like, said Bridge, reflecting. Red hair and blue eyes, an American way of speaking, and a cross on his forehead, right above the nose. A cross? What do you mean? A scar, sir. A criss-cross slashed with a knife. Frisco said he got it in South America, but I don't rightly know how. Frisco could be secret if he liked, even in his cups, and he could drink rum by the bucket. Have you set the detectives after him? Not yet. I'm waiting for the inquest to be held. It takes place today at the Pines. You will be there, Dr. Herrick, and your friend? Certainly, but my friend can tell you no more than I can. If I were you, though, Mr. Inspector, I should certainly seek out this Frisco man at once. What is his real name? I don't know, nor anyone else, sir. He was a mystery, I tell you. As to be looking him up, I like to do things in an orderly manner. First the inquest, and all the available evidence, sir. Then we shall see. Herrick shrugged his broad shoulders. It was not his business to instruct Bridge, but it seemed to him foolish to delay hunting for this mysterious Frisco. The man might be innocent, but on the face of it there appeared to be a strong suspicion against him. Men do not disappear without some reason, and as Frisco was gone, leaving a dead body behind him, 
It looked as though terror had winged his heels. His reason could resolve themselves into only one of two things. Either he had murdered his master himself and had fled to avoid the consequences, or he knew who had committed the crime and, intimidated by the assassin, had made himself scarce. While Herrick was turning over the situation in his own mind, a knock came to the door. Immediately afterwards, a girl entered. She was a slip of a thing who looked about nineteen, slim and well set up. Her face was oval and thin, and burnt red by wind and sun. Herrick had never seen before hair of such glorious red. It resembled ruddy gold, and was wreathed in burnished coils around her well-shaped head. This young lady had eyes of a sapphire blue and a firm set mouth. Dressed in a navy serge, plainly made, with a linen collar, a brown leather belt, and gauntlet gloves, she looked trig and neat. A girl likely to be passed over in a crowd until one looked into her wonderful eyes. The soul that looked out of them proved she was a woman of no common intelligence. Her manner was refined and well-bred. She was remarkably cool, and after a shrewd glance at Herrick, addressed herself to the inspector. "'I beg your pardon for interrupting you,' she said in a brisk but not unmusical voice. "'This inquest, Mr. Inspector. "'It takes place at the Pines this afternoon, Miss Endicott,' replied Bridge, who seemed to know her well. "'But surely, Miss, you will not attend?' Certainly, Mr. Bridge, I do the copy for the Chronicle. Besides, poor Colonel Carr was my friend, and I want to hear the truth about his death. Herrick looked sharply at the only person he had heard speak sympathetically of the dead man. There lives some soul of good in all things evil, he quoted, and a flash of the girl's teeth showed that she perfectly understood. Oh, I know that everyone speaks ill of the Colonel said she a trifle sadly. He was bad enough, no doubt, yet your quotation applies to him more than the gossip about him would lead you to suppose. Here she glanced at Bridge, not so much to emphasize the fact that he talked ill of the dead as to invite an introduction. Bridge was quick to see her real meaning. This is Dr. Herrick who found the body, said he, and this lady, Dr., is Miss Bess Endicott, who reports for the Bureau Minster Weekly Chronicle. Jim was a trifle surprised and disappointed to find that this charming young lady occupied such a position, though why he should have been either he could not explain even to himself. However, he bowed with a smile and received the same courtesies in return. Miss Endicott's eyes rested approvingly on his splendid figure. This is what I call a man, they seem to say, but with her tongue she uttered quite different sentiments. I'm glad to meet you, Dr. Herrick, she said gracefully. You must tell me all about your discovery, that is, you do not mind my making copy out of you. Not at all, responded Herrick eagerly. I am accustomed to be made copy of. My friend Mr. Joyce, who is at present upstairs asleep, is a literary man. I'm quite hand and glove with the guild, I assure you. In that case we must be friends, said Miss Endicott frankly. Mr. Joyce was with you last night? 
Unfortunately, yes, Miss Endicott. He's a nervous man, and not strong. I'm sorry to say that the terrible sight upset him. All the good I hoped he would obtain from this walking tour has disappeared. Are you on a walking tour? asked Bridge, who was putting on his cap. Yes, for the last fortnight we have been tramping over the country. The last place we stopped at was Southbury. Then we crossed the heath to stumble on this disagreeable adventure. Why do you smile, Miss Endicott? The girl flushed a trifle. I've heard of you. Of me? Jim stared. But I am not known in this part of the country, my dear lady. Have we met before? Somehow your face seems familiar. It would be more familiar if I were two inches taller and had dark hair, said Miss Endicott, with an amused look. If you will stare at... Ah, interrupted Jim eagerly, I remember now. The lady I saw talking to the little curate in Southbury Church. Was my sister, replied the girl. When you mentioned Southbury, I remembered that she mentioned how you stared at her and described your appearance. Then I recognized you. I hope your sister did not think me rude, said Jim, rather confused, but the fact is, she is so. I know, interrupted Miss Bess composedly, Ida is accustomed to admiration, but this is not business, she added, turning to Bridge. Well, what's to be done now, Mr. Inspector? Nothing can be done until the inquest is held, he replied, going towards the door. But I recommend you, Miss Bess, to interview this gentleman. He can tell you much that will be of interest to your readers. The inspector slipped out with a laugh, and Miss Endicott turned her sparkling eyes on Dr. Herrick. I hope you won't think me a nuisance, she said hesitatingly, but if you could... Only too pleased, said Jim, placing a chair. What is it you wish to know, Miss Endicott? All about yourself and your friend, and the walking tour, and the discovery. Thus far she rattled on blithely, but then flushed and stammered. Please do not think me rude, she murmured. In my present capacity, I am simply a machine for the Bureau, Mr. Chronicle. If you do not wish to tell me anything... I have not the slightest objection, replied Jim, laughing. Do you object to my smoking? I can answer your questions better if I smoke. Please do, cried Miss Endicott eagerly. I'm used to it. My brother Frank is never without a pipe in his mouth. Your brother and I should got on well together, then, said Herrick, artfully. Not that he wanted to meet the brother so much as the beautiful sister of Southbury Church. However, this interview... Miss Bess, as the inspector called her, pulled out a pocketbook and became the reporter at once. She was versed in her profession and put the shrewdest of questions. All the same, she appeared to be nervous at times, and Herrick guessed that it was an innately refined woman struggling with the necessary obtrusiveness of the breadwinner. However, he did his best to put her at ease and told his story as concisely as possible. My name is James Calthrop Herrick, he said. I'm a doctor, supposed to be practicing in West Kensington, London. My friend Joyce was one of my patients, is, I should say. He lost his mother and fell ill. By the way, you need not put that down, Miss Endicott. 
All you need to let your readers know is that Mr. Joyce and myself have been on a walking tour and stumbled, as I said before, on the pines and the body. After which statement, Herrick detailed the arrival at the lighted house, the exploration and the discovery. Miss Endicott put all this down and promised to amplify it in such a manner that would not trench upon Herrick's private affairs. Then he asked the girl about Colonel Carr. She was rather reticent on the subject. I do not feel that I am justified in speaking of the matter, she said, shaking her head. All I can say is that Colonel Carr was better than his reputation. From what I can gather, he was murdered. Well, he expected to be, that is, she broke off and flushed. He expected to be murdered? Herrick looked keenly at her. Hush, said Miss Endicott, with a glance at the door. I have no right to say that. It is a long story and not very clear. If you remain in Saxham, if we become better acquainted, I might. How long do you stay? It all depends upon my friend, replied Herrick, his curiosity at fever heat with these hints. He is still ill, I am afraid. I must go up and see him now. We shall meet again, I hope. I think so. I shall be at the inquest. And you? Of course, I must give evidence. Joyce also, if he is well enough. By the way, Bridge mentioned some relatives of Carr's. Who are they? Miss Marsh and her son, said the girl, with some reluctance. They live in Bishop's Close in Beerominster. It will be a great shock to them, although they were not on good terms with the Colonel. Will they be at the inquest? Mr. Marsh will be there, but his mother is very ill. She caught cold a day or two ago, and is now in bed with a sharp attack of pneumonia. Troubles never come singly, said Herrick sententiously. By the way, the suspicions of Bridge about Frisco. I am sure he is innocent, cried Miss Endicott, flushing. Frisco was bad, but he loved the Colonel. He would not have killed him. I, I. She suddenly shook her head, checked herself, and walked out of the room. Herrick stared. Was it possible that this charming girl knew the truth? End of chapter 2